Good morning. Good morning. I see many friends here online and in this room. How nice. It's a large room and some of you are far away. So if you can't hear, please just make a hey, I can't hear kind of a gesture. And I will do my best to project my voice. Ah, well, it's lovely to be here with you today. I brought the topic of Dana and Kshanti um, today, which are uh, giving and endurance. Giving and endurance, Dana Kshanti. And these are uh, <clears throat> two of the Paramitas. Uh, paramitas, which is translated many ways. Some people say Paramitas is that which crosses one to the other shore or uh, practices of perfection. <clears throat> They're the Mahayana path. So in early Buddhism, we have the Eightfold Path as the basic method for creating liberation for people. And in Mahayana, the Paramitas are the basic method for liberating all beings from suffering. A small project <laughs> that I'm sure you're all pleased to be a part of. So uh, there are actually numerous different lists of paramitas in the early Buddhism. They have a list, I don't actually remember how many. And the traditional one in Mahayana Buddhism is six. Of course, in the Huayan tradition, there are more because there's more of everything in the Huayan. Mm -hmm. So we have 10. But I'm gonna just uh, recite you the six right now <coughs> that are you see over and over again in Mahayana literature. Dana, Shila, Kshanti, Virya, Jhana, and Prajna. So that's giving, ethical activity, endurance, energy, meditation, and wisdom. <coughs> giving, ethical action, endurance, energy, meditation, and wisdom. So uh, today I'm just focusing on two of these, and the truth is we could do like a whole class, uh, you know, an eight-week course, or maybe a year uh, on either one of them, which is often the case. But I wanted to pair Donna and Chanti because Donna giving is generally understood as a way to um, alleviate the suffering created by clinging. And Kshanti, endurance, is a way to alleviate the suffering caused by ill will. So, in short, you know, we have three poisons in Buddhism. Desire, aversion, and delusion. And so these are the main antidotes in Mahayana Buddhism to the affect of the emotional energies, that is, desire and aversion, trying to get or push away, that create so much suffering for human beings. Uh, there is a tendency in the literature for, for some reason, Donna, like when they're writing about Donna, it really focuses on like giving, actually giving stuff, like things. Uh, so it's, it's very actional and, and looks like an external thing, whereas Shanti tends to, the literature is mostly about the attitude or the quality of the emotional content of our experience, how we feel, how we feel. <clears throat> So, uh, desire and aversion. Yeah, so am I the only one who's like, well, desire is wonderful, you know? Well, I should have aversion. So, uh, yeah, but 
in Buddhist literature, it's very relentlessly explicit that it is possible to not have desire and aversion, that that is a wonderful thing, and that if that occurs, what you will do is devote all the energy of your life to helping people be well. So if you, whenever you're like, what well, don't I need desire to do this? Maybe, but what the tradition is relentless is it saying is you do not. Whether that's absolutely true, I don't know because I'm not Buddha. But it certainly challenges basic ideas because like how do you act if you don't have any desire? It's a bit of a mystery, I know. But uh, Buddhism does invite some pretty expansive possibilities and really invites us to look beyond what we think now to something that is much more free than we can even imagine. The freedom of Buddhism is an unimaginable freedom because it's not bound by our conceptualization and our habits of thought. So when thinking about desire and aversion, which are like we have the main categories in Buddhism and then there's in Buddhist psychology there's enormous degree of subheadings um, of these things. So with aversion you have anger, hatred, hypocrisy, malice, envy, deceitfulness, guile, harmful, harmfulness, arrogance. There's some more, but you get the idea. And likewise with desire, there's different t categories. So you can just see in your own experiences, like, oh, right now, definitely malice. <laughs> Feeling a little malice, turned on the news today, felt some malice. Might happen. <clears throat> so, although not all Buddhist teachings by any means agree on this point, uh, many of them support the point that I'm about to make, which I think is important, which is there is no emotion which one should or shouldn't have. So I just don't have any interest in determining whether someone's emotion is appropriate because it's here. If you have an emotion, it's here. So like, it doesn't make sense, like, is that tree appropriate? <laughs> you know, is it appropriate that I have uh, pain in my shoulder right now? What? Well, that's not a category that makes sense. It is happening. And that is true. I do have a little pain in my shoulder. That's occurring. So I could just be like, that is currently occurring. So when I'm angry, it's like, this is here. Appropriate? I should or shouldn't? Does not apply. <clears throat> so having said that, it is possible to practice to create the conditions so people don't have to appear, experience afflictive emotions. And I'm pretty sure everyone listening right now is a people, so we qualify. You know, we can uh, take action, even though we're not saying an emotion is wrong, bad, or shouldn't happen, to create the conditions so people don't have to experience it as much. <clears throat> so, just some glimpses of this in the tradition. You know, there's a, a quite famous poem by Ryokan, the... Uh, I think 18th century Japanese monk. He wrote, The thief left it behind. The moon at my window. The thief left it behind. 
the moon at my window. You don't really get a strong sense of clinging or aversion in this. So we, the story is, there's, a, there's more context for this. Someone broke into his hut, took his very meager possessions. This is a person who was often near starving in the winter when it was hard to get down to the village to beg. And he loved calligraphy. They stole all his calligraphy stuff. And he said, oh, the thief left it behind. The moon outside my window. What is possible? Now, the, what the problem is, when people hear that, they go, oh, someone stole something from me and I'm mad about it. Are you saying I'm doing it wrong? No. So this is one of the challenges of our tradition, is to be able to look at the possibility of freedom full in the face without turning it into judgment of ourselves or trying to somehow explain away how we actually are. So Riyakan also has a beautiful poem uh, where he talks about being so sad about something, he soaks the sleeve of his robe with tears. <clears throat> and I have this poem by, uh, is it Igui? Uh, she writes, now she has poems that really have very similar character to Riyakan's that are just like, all kinds of crazy stuff is happening. She's just free. Just not pushing away, not trying to get. But she also has this poem. Mourning my teacher, the venerable nun Shingan. She won. After submitting myself to her rigorous training for several years, a midday dream shattered awake, tears not yet wiped away. Alas, why did I have to be separated from my teacher so soon? The family pine tree has grown still and knows no sorrow. Since when have spring and fall passed without me serving her? I find myself imitating the birds crying over the fallen branches, broken-hearted. I listen as again and again they return my calls. Then silently I shut the brushwood gate against the wind and rain. Very common in Chan and Zen literature to find poems by the same people just completely meeting shattering emotions. And yet, you'll turn the page and there'll be a poem where something terrible happens and they're just like, oh, flames! What is that? The thief left it behind, the moon at my window. <clears throat> so, when there is an emotional state, it's really powerful to know what it is, to bring the attention there. Not to the thoughts or the objectification that is related to it. That's a really key point. So, like, getting close to anger isn't about spending time thinking about how someone else is a dick. <laughs> it's about what does the body feel like right now? What is the experience of this emotion itself? <clears throat> so just to give you a couple more quick examples of kind of uh, what I'm talking about. Like, so I said I have this pain in my shoulder. Now, I don't have to think that I shouldn't have a pain in my shoulder or have aversion to that pain, which right now I don't. I, it's just like something is happening. 
But even though that's true, I can be like, I want to do things so that pain isn't there. And so other people don't have to experience similar pain. So my hot tip to you is don't ski down something you're not ready to ski down in two inches of snow. <laughs> so that's me taking action to prevent you from experiencing this kind of thing. So that actually what, what Mahayana Buddhism wants to see is us doing things that are conducive to liberation. That's the interest. <clears throat> or another one on the desire side, uh, arranging flowers. So look at that. Wow. What emotion do you experience when you look at the flowers? Ah. And uh, you know, it's possible to arrange the flowers not because you want something to happen but to just arrange the flowers. But you are creating the conditions for people to experience beauty. You know, you're just doing the thing right now. But why are you doing the thing? Because you're creating conditions for people to experience beauty. <clears throat> okay, so, Donna, giving. Done is to create freedom from clinging and desire. It's pretty good. Uh, great story. I couldn't find the source. I just remembered it. Oral tradition of like uh, someone in Japan in that they were like begging and they were like, oh, we're begging all around the town for our food because we're monks and nuns. And they weren't going to part of town because people were really poor. And the abbot was like, no way. You have to give the poor people the opportunity to give. Really important. Everyone can give. No one does not have the capacity to engage in dana. <clears throat> I find talking about dana a little embarrassing because I feel kind of parsimonious and miserly. I have to use big words just to make myself feel better about it. <laughs> But uh, yeah, giving, giving material goods is not very easy or natural for me. I think I'm generous in, in some, many ways. <coughs> but uh, yeah, in Moon and a Dewdrop, uh, Dogen talks about the four bodhisattvas, four methods of guidance, giving, kind speech, uh, beneficial action, and identity action. So giving is dana. And, he, he opens the essay, he says, giving means non-greed. Non-greed means not to covet. So it's just like, the, the emphasis here is even though there's the act of giving, what it's about is not holding on. Because ultimately, from a Buddhist perspective, the problem is the clinging. But, you know, dislodging clinging just by thinking about being generous may be insufficient. <laughs> So actually giving things is pretty good. Um, in early Buddhism, there's so much emphasis on like sort of letting go, you know, a lot of things about how beautiful and free we can be if we give things away and if we don't hold on to things and if we don't have possessions, which certainly runs counter to a lot of the culture that we are pervaded with uh, around here. But the point is not to give things away or to renounce things because that would make you virtuous or a good person. It's because it will help you be more free and help everyone else be more free. 
This is a kind of a hard thing to hear, I think, uh, where I live, but I like it. I like to be challenged. I don't know about you. Now, although the early Buddhism emphasizes this giving away or this letting go, uh, we get in Mahayana literature a, a different approach, which really becomes highlighted in the Avatamsaka, or the Flower Garland Sutra, where they just present you a vision of the world that is so bountiful, so abundant, so beautiful, so amazing, so nurturing, so giving, that you're like, why would I possibly need to hold on to anything? I'm going to turn around, there's going to be jewels emerging from the earth. <laughs> And this is also the theme of uh, a wonderful book that just came out by an uh, author named Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a Potawatomi, uh, both a Potawatomi naturalist and a biologist. And really the theme of that book is people don't see how abundant the world is. And so we feel like we have to constantly extract from it. And so we're living in this very unhealthy relationship. But, you know, she just demonstrates all the ways in which total symbiosis between people and the earth has been and is enacted now, in particular, in indigenous North American cultures. <clears throat> what book is that? Uh, oh, it's called Braiding Sweetgrass. Braiding Sweetgrass. Great book. Yes, it is a great book. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Oh, I'm just talking and talking. Let me just read you a passage from the Avatamsaka. When bodhisattvas give, they give rise to these frames of mind. An unattached mind, an unfettered mind, a liberated mind, a mind of strength, and a profound mind, a well-concentrated mind, a non-clinging mind, a non-subjective mind, a controlled mind, an undistracted mind, a mind without arbitrary conceptions, a mind endowed with all prescience precious essences, not seeking reward, a mind comprehending all things, a mind abiding in great dedication, a mind skillfully determining particular meanings. It goes on for like three more pages, mm -hmm. but. Ah, possibility. You know, some people find this kind of Mahayana rhetoric really annoying, <laughs> but trying to break through how limited we are how limited we feel, how small and separate. <clears throat> There's a great story in the Avatamsaka where there's this long story of this king who has a lot of wealth and he's giving it away, giving it away, giving it away, giving it away. And then, uh, which is also actually a theme in all Buddhist literature, the importance of people with wealth giving it away, especially uh, people with very high status. There's this great scene where this girl who's a spiritual pilgrim meets him, and she's like, wow, this is really beautiful. And he's like, laid all this stuff out to give to the poor people in the community. And she's like, wow, you are so inspiring. And she just takes off all her jewelry and throws it in the pile. Says, where are we going now? <laughs> it's great. <clears throat> And, you know, dana oftentimes in, in Buddhist cultures is really associated with uh, lay communities giving to monastic communities to support monastic institutions. And, uh, yeah, that's really beautiful. And, and uh, you know, I'm a, I, I am supported. I have a half-time professional position at this Zen Center, and I'm supported by you. And I'm deeply grateful. You know, I get to spend my time hanging out with people who want to involve themselves in growing 
and being free from suffering. What an honor is that? So, you know, I really appreciate that. And, you know, people here give a lot. Like, wow, we're sitting in a room. I managed to avoid being involved in the fundraising process to build this addition to this building. So I don't know. People <laughs> gave a lot of money. You know, there are probably people in this room who gave a lot of money. This costs like $900,000 or something. It's a big deal. Generosity. And what happens? People can come here. So a couple people walked in here on a Thursday night. They'd never been to a Zen center. They sat down for 10 minutes and they left. They couldn't have done that. You might go, that's not enough. It's enough for me. They got to come in. They, I didn't tell them anything. They just walked in. They all made bows to the Buddha. All right, is that meaningful to you? The only way this can happen is through giving. I'm so grateful for all the generosity. And the model we have here is much less hierarchical than like a sort of a lay monastic model because what do we have like 80 or 90 people volunteering here on a monthly basis probably i mean it's amazing the amount of stuff people do to take care of each other and give to make this happen is like awesome someone's in the kitchen not strumming on a banjo but <laughs> making us <laughs> Uh, sorry. <laughs> anyway, I'm not sure who it is, but they're making us food to eat and tea and coffee. The people we clean together. Every well, five mornings a week, I get to come here and clean with other people to take care of our place and so many things. So, so much dance. Wonderful. <clears throat> okay, endurance, kshanti, uh, kshanti, third paramita, sometimes translated as patience or forbearance. I don't use patience very much because it sounds like, to me, it just has the connotation of waiting for something else. And it's not about something else. If it's Mahayana Buddhism, it's not about something else. Uh, and forbearance, uh, pretty good, but that implies that you have to be suppressing something in a sense. And endurance doesn't necessarily, Kshanti, need to involve any kind of holding anything back. So, uh, yeah, this is about just transforming so we don't experience ill will. And I know you could be like, but I need to have ill will. How will I, you know, uh, protect myself? Well, actually, you could just say, no, you, I will leave if you do that. You don't have to be angry to do that. You don't have to be angry to go to the Capitol and carry a sign that says, stop climate change. It's not necessary. I'm not saying you're wrong or bad if you are. Back to theme number one. If you're angry, take care of anger. If there's climate change, take care of climate change. If there's sorrow, take care of sorrow. There's abuse. Intercede. <clears throat> a couple verses from the Dhammapada, which is like a very central early Buddhist text. It's just these little phrases. They're really memorable. I, it's, if you want to have like little phrases to remember about like how to be Buddhist, go get yourself a copy of the Dhammapada. There'll be some things in there you might not like, but there's some really amazing stuff too. Anyway, here's one. He endures unangered insult, assault, and imprisonment. His army is strength, his strength, 
endurance, shanti. He's what I call a Brahmin. Or this one, happy, happy indeed we live, friendly amidst the hostile. Amidst hostile men, we dwell, we dwell free from hatred. This puts me in mind of the, if, you, if there are any other uh, recovering uh, addicts and alcoholic like me, how many times have you heard resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die? <laughs> I mean, I don't really want to live among hostile people. And if you live among hostile people and you're not happy, that makes sense. Your emotion is valid. But there is some other possibility. There is some other possibility. Famous story from a monk who was imprisoned in Tibet for a long time. And I just read, oh, I cannot remember the name of the book. I just read an account of a, of a Tibetan woman who, who uh, was imprisoned for many years when the Chinese uh, invaded uh, Tibet. And it was horrible. I mean, the, the conditions were god-awful. The torture, abuse, murdering of people, really bad. And, uh, you know, she, she was very uh, angry and sad and all that, but also just really focused on, like, how can we make freedom here? <clears throat> but in that situation, um, there's a story the Dalai Lama likes to tell about a monk came out of a long stint in prison where he was, he was tortured quite a bit. And he was asked, you know, were you afraid? And he said, yes. He said, I was afraid I would lose my capacity for compassion. So this is a person who's deeply trained in the value of Kshanti. And what mattered to him was his own agency, an agent of liberation, not what someone else was doing. <clears throat> So this is, you know, this is like uh, kind of hard to take in. But, you know, practically speaking, when we encounter a situation, when I encounter a situation that uh, I'm upset about, you know, we can know the body, know the emotion, take whatever time is needed there, maybe over and over again. Sometimes it's like, wow, I've been in this relationship for 10 years and I'm still getting really pissed. <laughs> Am I alone? Um, so, uh, and care, care about how I am. And then I can go, well, what would be beneficial to do? What would create the conditions for people to not have to experience this? And then see if I can generate the energy to do it. And in a lot of ways, like, what we think of as letting um, ill will come up is actually clinging to it. So it's like the mind clings, it creates the clinging to the emotional state. You know, you just, if we loop on something we don't like, it's like, oh my God, do I have to hear, I grew up in the 80s, REO Speedwagon again? <laughs> <laughs> But that's, we're, hold, we're actually holding on to the suffering. Now on the other hand, sometimes there, it's like we suppress emotions. 
So, you know, when we do acts that are about not suppressing emotions, like when we do metta practice or tongue lead practice or a lot of other kinds of practices that actually summon emotions, the focus we shift once we've brought the emotion into experience, come to the emotion. Don't stay in the story. So, I'll say it again, I'm not saying any feeling you ever have is wrong or you shouldn't have. <clears throat> the idea here is to care about people. We talk about clinging and aversion, it's like we realize, oh, this is like, life has a lot of this. Can we really touch it without making ourselves hold on to it more? <clears throat> so I would like to uh, now do a little guided meditation uh, related to uh, generating dana and kshanti. So for people who think it's fun to sit in a particular way for meditation, you are welcome to arrange your body in such a way. This will probably be about 10 minutes of doing this. And um, this, you know, I'm going to do a little bit with Donna and then a little bit with uh, Kshanti, and these will both be uh, involved visualization. And the Kshanti meditation will be sort of an adapted Tonglen practice for those of you familiar with Tonglen. Well, let's just begin by, uh, because this is a visualization practice, I invite you to close your eyes. Zazen is an eye-open practice, but visualizations are good with eyes closed. And I invite you to just let the attention rest in the sensations of the body. And if it helps to notice the breath, to invite yourself into the whole sensations of the body, that's, that's fine. And then just uh, invite you to notice any emotion that is present right now. Sometimes it's kind of hard to tell what that means. If you have a noticeable emotion and you want to name it with a word or two, that's, that's fine. It's mindfulness of emotion. So even as we um, do some visualization, I encourage you to see that you can also know the body and the emotion that's here. The mind, its capacity for focus is quite pliable. I'm just going to invite you to recall an instance where you gave something and it just felt good.
and just take a try and sort of visualize or whatever means of imagination helps you remember the situation that you gave something and it felt good Once you've summoned up the image, just see if you can shift away from the story and the imagination and the memory and just notice the body and the emotion. Let's just do one more. Just think of uh, another instance where you gave something and it felt good. And once you've thought of it, just brought the memory into focus, just notice the body and whatever emotion is present. And now, I just invite you to let your attention extend uh, to sound. Realizing that consciousness extends a long way. <coughs> a vast space. I'm going to invite you to think of something that you're uh, mildly aversive towards. So just maybe something irritating that happened recently. You know, you dropped something on the floor or you were late getting somewhere. Uh, something pretty mild, <coughs> but that you got really annoyed about. Just actively remember this, draw the experience into memory. See if you can turn away from the story and just bring your attention to the emotion, which may be ungraspable, and just actively turn towards it. Visualize breathing it into the body. And then realize it dissipates completely into the entire space of consciousness, as far away as you could possibly hear or see to the sky.
let's just try this again and you can just use your own judgment on what degree of uh, aversion or ill will event you want to think of. Please don't do something that's going to harm you. And just think of something that was difficult, you have some difficult feelings towards. Recall the event. Turn away from the story. Focus on the emotion. Visualize breathing the emotion in. And then just recognize that it just dissipates into the entire field of awareness. It's on that plane that's flying overhead right now in the entire sky through which the plane moves. just invite you to do one more on your own so you recall an event where there was affliction let go of the story turn towards the emotion breathe it in and see it dissipate into the vast space you can do this at your own pace I just invite you to rest in whatever is here. I'm going to invite you to join me in calling up an intention to take action to alleviate suffering to create the conditions for well-being for everyone everywhere
So, guided meditation is, I don't know, has its value, has its value. But you know, usually here we invite people to practice zazen. Zazen is a wonderful place to just have whatever comes up be seen. I'll be honest, I just, when I came here, mostly when I sat zazen, I was unhappy. Often crying at great length, overwhelmed with rage and shame. Because that's why I came here, because I wasn't doing well. <laughs> and then I sat down and I still wasn't. But the thing is, I was doing well because I was with how I actually was. So much suppressed suffering had room to come up because I wasn't doing something with my mind. I wasn't doing something to it. It was just, it was just here. So much healing can happen when we make room for people to just be how they are without holding on to it. Shanti and Dana are, are about not holding on to that. Not holding on to it also is a way of, when we push it away, we're, we're holding it to put it somewhere. Not where I'm looking at it. <clears throat> just letting it come up. Now, having said that, some people, and I'm so glad this is true, don't have to sit through anguish during zazen. <laughs> so the problem is, then I say that, and people, oh, I'm not having any anguish in my zazen. Oh, poor you. <laughs> no. No. It's good. What is it? That's what it is. Joyfulness? Get down. <laughs> Celebrate good times. Come on. So, yeah. Letting it in. What it is. <clears throat> All right. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> so, uh, I'd like to invite uh, other people to uh, speak. I welcome questions or reflections, and as always, uh, it's a large group and a little time, so if you can be terse, uh, that's good. Go ahead, Ramon. Um, there's, a, there's a Catholic writer, Thomas More, and he, he writes of materialism. He says, it's not bad that you want something, that you desire something, that you work for it, you get, get it. It's like, it's that you're never fulfilled. And the way he looks at it is that if I really love something, I wouldn't trust anybody else to take care of it. If I got it, I would want to do everything for it. If I truly wanted, loved it, you know, I would just, it would fulfill me and I would want to do everything to maintain it and I wouldn't trust anybody else to look at it, touch it or anything else. Can you perhaps uh, comment on that view and, and perhaps the contrast or similarities of what you just spoke of? <clears throat> yeah, well, I'll just say, you know, the basic mechanism in Buddhist psychology and karma theory is like when there's a moment of desire, if that desire is not directly seen, it will plant a seed of further desire. So if I like online shopping and I'm just like, I'm online shopping and I'm like, Ooh, when am I going to get the thing? I'm not looking at desire. 
I'm looking at the thing. So the desire is just planting more and more seeds of desire, which is, that's why the problem isn't so much online shopping. Uh, might be a problem, but anyway. <laughs> anyway, so turning to look at that desire itself is, is really powerful, powerful. So there's a reflection. Yeah, other uh, people. If you're online, if you use your little hand raise, that's handy. Go ahead, KT. Um, my, my experience with Zen practice has been about learning to be brave. And so much of this is about looking at the things we're trying to hide. And a lot of it's about how do I feel safe? And it's interesting to explore Donna and giving things away. And how can I feel safe not having things? And how does getting rid of that desire actually make me safer? So that's something I, I've been playing with. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I would like to thank you, Katie, for realizing you should speak with a strong voice in this big room yeah. and, and invite everyone else to emulate that awesome conduct. And secondarily, a great point, and if you think about the idea of refuge, the basic act of committing to Buddhism is of taking refuge not in things that you get, but in the practice and possibility of liberation, which I think connects to what your safety, refuge. So, thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I have a lot to say about giving, <laughs> but I won't go there with all of you. What I do want to say is that it opens your heart. Giving opens your heart, and the more your heart is open, the more you want to give. It's that simple. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Hmm. Just uh, one reflection. You and I had a meeting many, many years ago, and we were talking about Kashanti. And I had a lot of affliction, afflictive uh, emotion at the time. And one of the things that you said was that Kashanti forbearance has a tone of like kindness or kind of a tone of compassion. And I found that to be very helpful. Mm. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's not going to help us if we're like, why are you angry? Right? Yeah, somehow it's like, Compassion overarches everything else in the Mahayana. So sometimes people say, why aren't you talking about compassion? It's like, why do you give? Because you care. Why would you engage in ethical action? Because you care. And why do you engage in ethical action? Because I don't care enough, so I need some help to, to get reminded how to care. So thank you for that. Thank you. Hey, Ben. Yeah. So just a real quick comment when you were talking about um, patience and endurance, um, patience and endurance, I ran across a, a descriptor of the Chinese symbols that represent that, and they can be to be translated as patience or endurance. But anyway, and it's really stuck with me because I found it very powerful. It's the symbol of four, it's two symbols actually, it's the symbol for a sword suspended over a heart. Mm -hmm. Mm. Wow. A sword suspended over a heart. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Unkyo. 
We're going to do a couple online here, or at least one. Unkyo, please. So when, so I, when heard I heard you... you... Oh, there's, oh, there's an echo. echo. Oh, I got it. I got that. Hold on, Jeannie. Thank you. Got gotcha. it. Thank you. Um, so when you were talking about um, Donna and Kashanti, I heard you at the beginning of the talk kind of frame it like uh, Donna is very clearly about like action in the world. And Kashanti is, it seems to be almost more oriented toward taking care of the emotive experience. Um, so maybe this question doesn't really fit with that but but you also kind of paired Donna with um Donna with aversion no Donna with desire and Kashanti with aversion when so my question is and you offered this kind of practice this Tonglen type of thing in the moment when ill will or anger or some version comes up, some version of that comes up, how how can we practice endurance, like in the moment when I'm not on the cushion? Yeah. But sort of, to me, it sort of depends on how much time you have, but there's probably always time to not do something harmful. So <laughs> what I didn't do is, it goes Dana Shilak Shanti. So yeah. the usual structure for this kind of thing in Buddhism is we start with having some guidelines about how to not do something harmful. So it's like the first impulse, like I'm sitting there in a meeting and someone says to me, I get really mad about. And it's like, what I want my first impulse to be is don't say something that causes harm. <laughs> Number one, that's my precept. And then it might be like, I'm not going to be able to figure out how to say something helpful until I have a look at what's going on here. So then I may have to just pause and be like, all right, wow, touch the feeling and, you know, generate some compassion for what is right here. And then, and then uh, determine, you know, what action to take. It might be like, this is a situation where I really need to say something. There's not, we're not going to be together again and harm has been done. Or it might be like, you know what? I'm in a relationship with these people a long time. I got my own thing going on here. I need to process this. So then the discernment is really the, the complex part. But I would just say, don't take a harmful action. Notice the emotion that's here and then make your determination about what to do. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Tim. Yeah, hi. Uh Thanks, Ben. Thanks for the talk, and, and particularly the uh, guided meditation. Uh, I've had this uh, aversion that's been dogging me around for like a week, like an earworm or something. And uh, you know, when you, when, when we went through the guided meditation, at some point, uh, I, yeah, you, you said feel it in your body. And then my body relaxed. It released. Hmm. Wow. I, I don't think I could have done that by myself. I mean, it's been a week of me. Uh, so uh, thanks for the guided meditation. That was <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks for that. Thank you. Thank you. Boy, isn't that nice. If you've never had the experience of being like, I'm caught on something. I just came here. Really? Ah, oh, this is how I feel. Notice the body. It's 
I hope you do. I hope you do. It can happen. It's pretty cool. Um, on the other hand, sometimes it doesn't happen at all. <laughs> the body is just, you know, it will just be surging, especially if there's, if you have a trauma history, sometimes it's like these things can be very, very pervasive in the body. So uh, kind of holding the possibility that that complete dropping away can just happen without expecting it or clinging to it or having aversion to the feeling, that's subtle. It's practice, but it is possible. And uh, yeah, I like to say, you know, I don't want to encourage people to suppress emotions, but it is totally okay if you're having some thought that is causing you to suffer or judge people and you just know it doesn't help at all to just be like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> it's okay. You're just, you know, you're like, uh, I try and avoid traffic, the traffic story. You're in traffic. I got mad. Just be like, this is dumb. I'm not going to do it. It is dumb to be mad here. It doesn't help anyone whatsoever. I'm skipping it. You know, or it's like, it's maybe something that uh, your spouse does that you find kind of annoying. And you're, just, I already talked to them about it. It's not a big deal. I'm going to skip it. It's okay. That is not spiritual bypassing to be like, I'm going to skip torturing myself. <laughs> I understand that we're all concerned about spiritual bypassing, but yeah, it's okay. We can just put things down. Oh, I, you know, holding this hot coal, I'm just going to put it down. Somewhere it won't start another fire. Please. <clears throat> All right, well, it's been lovely to uh, uh, be here with you. And I'm going to turn uh, the microphone over to our esteemed Doan. Thank you all very much. <laughs>